Says Jennifer Stone with Stone's throw. Yes, those shadows dropped the shadows out of sight. <laughs> I tried to hide from things as they are. Yes, the zeitgeist. By going to the movies last weekend, I saw The Merchant of Venice. Yes, I. Uh, I thought, well, you know, I thought that would be an escape. Um, what kind of a mind I have, you know? I thought that. Shakespeare does nuance. That's what he does. Art makes you think. And I thought, uh, well, I thought, damned if the movie doesn't just about um, zero in on nearly every issue that most of us are grappling with in 2005. <laughs> the play is all about us. It's full of feminism and folly and fear and fundamentalism uh, all the isms, mostly otherism. It seems that human nature is a constant. Um, some things change, mostly the costumes, but first of all, yes, this issue of otherism. The Jew, Shylock, in The Merchant of Venice, that's the quintessential other. Al Pacino is, uh, well, he's very moving as Shylock, um, Layers and layers. You remember that Shylock is not the merchant. The merchant of Venice. The, the merchant of the title um, is Antonio. But Shylock dominates the play. And so many people think of him as the title character. Uh, I'm reading a book called Will in the World or How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare by Stephen Greenblatt. And he goes into the motives that Shakespeare had for writing the play. If I have time to get into that. Um, I hope to use this book as a marathon premium for those of you uh, who like biographies of William Shakespeare. In any case, in the play, you remember the merchant is Antonio. He's played by Jeremy Irons. Antonio is a deeply depressed, mournful man, uh, gloomy from start to finish. Um, he loves a younger man, Bassanio, well, in vain, actually, apparently, if they've had an affair, it's over. Uh, Joseph Fiennes plays Bassanio. The intimate relationship between the older man, Antonio, and Bassanio is expressed openly. It's quite blatant at one point. When Portia is trying to save Antonio's life because she's fallen in love with Bassanio, she says in no uncertain terms that, of course, um, she would 
what is it, like him, revere him, respect him, um, in the same way that um, she loves her lover, because, of course, uh, they were uh, close or intimates. But uh, this Bassanio, he's this romantic bisexual type, and he wants to marry the rich Portia. She's the beautiful and um, infinitely wise. Yes, the women in this play are um, infinitely wise. Portia gets to dress as a man and do that lovely trial scene. I remember that was the one... I think starting in high school, everybody had to do Portia's speech. You know, the quality of mercy is not strained. It droppeth as the gentle rain from heaven on the place beneath. In other words, it was uh, natural to be merciful. <laughs> Lynn Collins is the actress playing um, Portia. She's a Botticelli Venus in all the opening scenes. Oh, she's so gorgeous. She's the one, you know, she's sitting around waiting for suitors. Her father has left her these three caskets, and the guy who picks the right casket uh, wins Portia. There's lots of nice fairy tale um, games and subtlety. I love the scene in which she looks at one of the suitors and says she will do anything before she's married to a sponge. That was one of my mother's favorite lines. Yes, he's a drunkard, of course. Married to a sponge is the worst fate of any woman. <laughs> the movie is basically a funeral for the most part. The audience looked pretty depressed when they left, but, of course, I loved it. Uh, I think some, well, the, the friend I went with suggested that perhaps... There should have been some sunshine at the beginning, you know, so there was something, uh, well, something to, what is it, an arc, you know, so that things could darken gradually. No, I, I think the play is, is just this long, grim, gray, uh, sad march. Uh, the good news, of course, is the art direction. It's incredible portraiture. Uh, it's like tapestries. Jeremy Irons looks like a crucified Christ. Uh, he looks like someone in an El Greco painting, you know, with elongated hands. He's just, uh, he's never going to look that tragic again. He tells the court during the trial that Shylock will never be moved to mercy, that Shylock will demand the pound of flesh that um, uh, Antonio uh, contracted for. Uh, he says that... Uh, this is so because Shylock is a Jew and therefore is no more capable of compassion than is a wolf, you know. He does this with so much sadness, so much melancholy and sorrow that, uh, you know, you kind of believe him. Anyway, you understand what it might feel like to have an absolute conviction. Looks like a Christian death wish to me, but in this play, of course... Uh, both the Christian and the Jew present as a villainous. Uh, nobody comes off well in this except, of course, Portia and uh, the other two women. Uh, the belief in absolutes, in holy wars. Now, these were subjects that Shakespeare knew all about, just as we do today. No difference. Um, as I say, it comes home to me over and over again how there has been no progress um, 
no difference in the basic human desires and behavior. At least the movie has costumes to die for and all this painterly cinematography, the Renaissance as we know it in art but not in life. Um, I'm sure nothing ever was that beautiful. Some scenes are like pre-Raphaelite dreamscapes. Uh, the scenes on Portia's lovely island and uh, Al Pacino, his pain is pure poetry. He's kind of a psychiatric nightmare. The last shot of him is unforgettable. Uh, of course, cut lots of the script. Uh, I suppose that was inevitable. Uh, in this in this movie, the images are basically visual more than verbal. Uh, metaphors for the eyes, the, the, the look of Venice in the winter, rain everywhere and dark and dank on the canals. Uh, I thought of uh, Othello and Desdemona eloping in Venice. <laughs> yes. Shylock's great keys rattling as he locks up his daughter and his ducats. Uh, Shylock's daughter, Jessica, she escapes at night as Desdemona did. She runs off with her Christian love, Lorenzo. She converts to Christianity, which, of course, was the uh, politically correct thing to do in the 16th century. For this scene, she, too, gets to dress as a boy. The three women characters cross-dress here. Portia's maid, uh, Nerissa, gets to put on pants during the court scene as well. Now... I'm ready to see this movie again, just to look at the tableaus and the uh, quality. It's like still lives. Uh, it's really mostly portraits. Uh, I don't know if this movie is going to be popular, but I'm sure it will find its audience. Um, for lots of background on uh, Shakespeare's sources, uh, I want to read you a little bit of the biography by Stephen Greenblatt. It's called Will in the World or How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare, uh, published by Norton. As I said, I want to get copies of this for the um, the marathon for our premium. Uh, what I think, I think the iconography of the frame in shot after shot in this movie, uh, I swear I woke up at four in the morning and it was still just echoing or, you know, imaging in my mind. Uh, I am I think this is the sort of movie that I will buy when it's on a DVD or something, but it needs to be seen in the theater so you get the full impact. Uh, now, let me remind you, there's one other thing. Oh, there's a review. Those of you who keep your New Yorkers back in September of last year, 13 September, uh, Adam Gopnik reviewed... This book, he calls it Willpower, Why Shakespeare Remains the Necessary Poet. It's Critic at Large in the New Yorker, September 13th, 2004. And it's a wonderful take on the book. Uh, let's see, I may have time to read you a little bit of that. Uh, but basically, uh, in the book, we learn about a famous trial that plays during Elizabeth's reign in which a man who was supposed to, to be a Jew, who denied uh, being a Jew, was accused of trying to assassinate the queen. 
And at his hanging, you remember in those days, you weren't just hung, you were hung, drawn, and quartered, a pretty, pretty ghastly scene. The crowd was heard to laugh at this man's last words. Um, there's a chapter in the book here called Laughter at the Slaughter. Uh, this guy proclaimed that he loved the queen as much as Jesus Christ. Now, it's possible that Shakespeare witnessed this scene on the scaffold. Certainly he heard all about it. And uh, I think, you know, the author of this Shakespeare biography seems to think that this may have been the catalyst uh, for Shakespeare's interest in this character, Shylock. Uh, the biography has a lot to say about anti-Semitism in England and Europe. The Jews were cast out of England in the 13th century. Uh, uh, they were tolerated in Venice, where we find uh, Shylock. Usury was um, actually practiced by non-Jews, but... Uh, was the Jews who were scapegoated for it. Uh, I was looking here on my list, yes, I think if you wanted a message in one line for this play, it would come from W.H. Auden, the poem September 1939, Those to whom evil is done do evil in return, and so on and on till someone says enough. Somebody has to say, uh, I love my children more than I hate my enemies, and I will stop this blood feud and make peace. Uh, I guess uh, humans just can't seem to function without an enemy. <laughs> yes, as George Bush says, yes. You've got to give them freedom whether they like it or not. Something or someone has to be the target, the scapegoat. It seems to be all about the old brain, the brain stem. Uh, let me see. Let me jump to the review here. Just a little background for those of you who are going to rush out and see this uh, fascinating movie. Remember, you must be patient. I think it's two hours and 15 minutes. And as I said, it's a little gloomy. Uh, now, the book, the biography, Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare, as reviewed by Adam Gopnik, Tells us, uh, Gopnik tells us that um, the author begins with a fine, disabused picture of Stratford, circa 1564, when the poet was born. Against that old notion of an expansive Elizabethan culture, connected by the open English road, he draws a portrait of a society nearly Soviet, perhaps South American, in its paranoias, public persecutions, and sudden, murderous changes of ideology. <laughs> Sound familiar? Excuse me, I interrupted Adam Gopnik. He goes on to say that uh, the underlying crisis was religious. In half a century within the lifetime of Shakespeare's father, John, England had gone through a very conservative regime of Catholicism, to an uneasy form of improvised state Catholicism under Henry VIII, through a period of radical Protestantism under King Edward VI, back to Roman Catholicism under Queen Mary, and then on to the staunchly Protestant monarchy of Elizabeth I. 
As each sect seized power, it set about burning and disemboweling those who had been ascendant moments before. By the time Shakespeare was a young man, to be a Catholic priest at all was a capital offense. The fear and brutality of this unending religious civil war was relieved by the richness of the surrounding folk culture, May Days, Robin Hood pageants, morality plays in tavern courtyards, and miracle plays on holidays. Folk culture is everywhere in Shakespeare's work, uh, webs of illusions. and uh, The folk culture was, for Shakespeare, inextricably tied up, as it is in the Mediterranean world to this day, with rituals and calendars enveloping the presence of the old faith. Now, the author of this biography uh, is assured about this. Earlier generations of scholars were reserved. Uh, but little doubt today remains that Shakespeare, whose father, mother, and daughter were all at times secret Catholics, was at some level... A partisan of the old religion, yes. <laughs> a disinterested record remarks after his decease that he died a papist. His mother, Mary Arden, came from an old, distinguished, and ardently Catholic family. His father, we all know the father, John the Glovemaker, uh, was a leading citizen of Stratford, uh, an alderman, a bailiff. He participated in the Protestant ascendancy. He arranged to have the local church ripped up, its icons and paintings removed, but at the same time, he made sure that the schoolmasters hired for the public school were Catholic sympathizers. And secretly, he signed a Roman Catholic spiritual testament. He hid it in the rafters of his house. This testament of faith was found still concealed in the 18th century. Now, there's no evidence that Shakespeare was a believing or a church-going Catholic. In his London years, he must have gone regularly to a Protestant church, or there would have been recorded legal consequences. Catholicism seems tied up for him, as it was for Englishmen well into the 19th century, with his love of ceremony and theatricality. He longed for the rituals that Protestant sobriety was eager to forbid. It was the pagan part of Catholicism that Shakespeare loved. Bare ruined choirs where late the sweet birds sang, yes. It's the Puritan part of Protestantism. It's Malvolioism that Shakespeare feared, yes. Hmm. There's one other note in this review. Uh... Yes, uh, Greenblatt, the author of the biography, points out that among the vast array of human types that Shakespeare drew, prostitutes, sorcerers, pickpockets, Egyptian queens, the only one, the only character he never attempted a sympathetic portrait of is the saint fanatic, the visionary religious. Yes, as we know, Shakespeare was passionately devoted to things as they are, yes. Not that he didn't have, well, the medieval part of his imagination is what I love, all the uh, nonsense in a Midsummer Night's Dream, you know. It's a road map to Shakespeare's childhood, uh, folk memory and pagan ritual, uh, 
Young lovers having sex in the woods, all that good stuff. <laughs> all the cross-dressing. I love that so much. Let me dig into the uh, biography itself and give you a taste. As I said, I hope to give this away during the next marathon as a premium because I want to get back to the Merchant of Venice and this situation that was going on in Elizabethan England that may have helped trigger... Uh, Shakespeare, let's see, there's this fellow, a Dr. Lopez. Now, he was accused, with a lot of other folks, of plotting against the Queen. Um, and he was uh, convicted. Uh, let's see, the execution was a public event. If Shakespeare did personally witness it, he would have seen and heard something beyond the ordinary a ghastly display of fear and ferocious cruelty. In the wake of his conviction, Dr. Lopez evidently had sunk into a deep depression. But on the scaffold, he roused himself and he declared, according to the Elizabethan historian William Camden, that, quote, he loved the queen as well as he loved Jesus Christ, which, coming from a man of the Jewish profession, Camden adds, quote, moved no small laughter in the standers-by. Now, this is in the chapter, Laughter at the Scaffold. And it may be, yes, that this laughter welling up from the crowd at the foot of the scaffold could have triggered Shakespeare's achievement in The Merchant of Venice. It was, for a start, exceptionally cruel. In a matter of moments, a living man would be hanged and his body torn into pieces. The crowd's laughter denied the solemnity of the event, treated violent death as an occasion for amusement. More specifically, it denied Dr. Lopez the end he was attempting to make, an end in which he hoped to reassert his faith as the Queen's loyal subject and as a Christian soul. The last words a person spoke were ordinarily charged with the presumption of absolute honesty, there's no longer any room for equivocation, no longer any hope for uh, deferral. And the author goes on here to explain uh, the nature of the humiliation um, this man suffered. And uh, yes, the laughter turned Lopez's last words from a profession of faith into a sly joke, a carefully crafted double entendre. <laughs> uh he loved the queen as well as he loved Jesus Christ, precisely since in the eyes of the crowd, Lopez was a Jew, and a Jew does not, in fact, love Jesus Christ. His real meaning was that he tried to do to the queen what his accursed race had done to Jesus. His words took the form of a declaration of innocence, but the crowd's response turned them into an ambiguous admission of guilt. Um, and this goes on at great length, uh, I wish there was some way, of course, to prove that Shakespeare had actually witnessed this event, but uh, if he didn't, he certainly heard about it. Um, the Merchant of Venice is full of amused mockery. Uh, it's not just, well, the movie, the film, opens with a scene in which Antonio spits, literally spits, on Shylock, uh, in uh, the streets of Venice. Uh, uh, let's see, the scene after Jessica has run away with her Christian lover, uh, 
uh, Shylock wanders in the street, deranged, and he's laughed at and mocked. Uh, uh, one of the Venetian Christians, Solonio, says, I never heard a passion so confused, so strange, outrageous, and so variable as the dog Jew did utter in the streets. My daughter, oh, my ducats, oh, my daughter, fled with a Christian, oh, my Christian ducats. Why all the boys in Venice follow him, laughs his friend Salerio, giving us a glimpse of the crowd's raucous amusement, crying, his stones, his daughter, and his ducats. When Shark's fiendish plot to avenge himself by cutting out a pound of good Antonio's flesh is defeated in court, the Jews' discomfiture as he is forced to convert is accompanied by a chorus of triumphant mockery from uh, Grazzanio. Grazzanio is the, the fellow that uh, is always being told to behave himself, that he's a vulgar. <laughs> he says, beg that thou mayest have leave to hang thyself. <laughs> Shakespeare chose not to bring his Jew to the gallows. He avoided killing off his villain, villains, at least on stage for the most part. Uh, but it may be that the playwright would have heard something like these lines at the foot of the scaffold on which Dr. Lopez was hanged. Hmm. The merchant of Venice found a way to give the spectators something of what the crowd at the execution enjoyed. But without the blood and gore, Shylock is the traditional killjoy. Yes, uh, he's deaf to music, the enemy of pleasure, he stands in the way of young love. But he is something worse than the conventional tyrant, possessive father, yes. Shylock, the Jew, is, as the title page of the first quarto puts it, a figure of extreme cruelty. He represents the rigid, inflexible uh, old law, the Old Testament law, an unforgiving, remorseless, embittered, murderous alien who threatens the happiness of the entire community. Of course, then, uh, when he is taken down, he is traduced and reduced, forcibly drawn into the community. He despises. Uh, okay. Uh, his conversion is just comedy's kinder, gentler way of killing him off. No, I don't know. If you call this, this a comedy. <laughs> yes. Anyway, uh, the laughter in the courtroom plainly demonstrates uh, conversion does not actually work to settle the issue of strangers or otherisms. Even Shylock's daughter Jessica, who has eloped and become a Christian, is not exempt. The clown Lancelot grumbles that as a Jew's daughter, she is damned. And he says besides, quote, This making of Christians will raise the price of hogs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I wish I had time to read you all of this chapter. Let's see. We know there are no uh, good guys in this play. They are all villains because they are uh, clinging to absolute ideas. But as Shylock says, I am a Jew and hath not a Jew eyes, hath not a Jew hands, organs, dimensions, senses, affections, passions. Fed with the same food, hurt with the same weapons, subject to the same diseases, healed by the same means, warmed and cooled by the same winter and summer, as a Christian is. If you prick us, do we not bleed? If you tickle us, do we not laugh? If you poison us, 
do we not die? And if you wrong us, shall we not revenge? Once again, the book is Will in the World, How Shakespeare Became Shakespeare by Stephen Greenblatt. And the film is over at the Albany Theater. I'll be back on the air again Thursday morning at 8.20. And the review, actually, is in the 14th September 2004 issue of The New Yorker by Adam Gopnik. It's called Willpower. Uh, Why Shakespeare Remains the Necessary Poet. Till next time, go easy. And if you can't go easy... Go as easy as you can. This is Scoop Nisker, and I'd like to invite you to a visual feast, the International Buddhist Film Festival, opening January 28th for a 17-day run in San Francisco, Berkeley, and San Rafael. These are films with insight, comedy, and compassion from some of the best filmmakers in the world. For information and advance tickets, visit www.ibff.org or call 925-275-9005. And please join me on February 11th for The Compassion Concert, a benefit for the festival and tsunami disaster relief. Performers include Mickey Hart, Hamza Eldin, the Gyoto Monks, and Joan John Renault. www.ibff.org